Welcome to the Unchanging Education Podcast with Dan Clemens. This is Season 3, Episode 4, and the title is Them 4, M. Oakshot, the fourth of the key figures in Tate's admirable book. So I want to start um, by talking about some of the ironies or contradictions that can be recognized within SC. The first and perhaps the most egregious contradiction of SC is that we're preparing and arming a generation of justice-minded change agents to remedy the past and imminentize the eschaton. And they need to be constantly protected from mild threats that might totally disarm them or disable them. We produce unstable would-be world creators to create a new unstable world in their own unstable image. The epic hero who, instead of serving as protector, must be the protectee. Also, you may recall going back to season one, this new teacher's role of hyper-responsibility to ensure learning, not to teach, not to accept the old adage that education is what you, students, make of it. No. The teacher is obviously responsible for teaching, but included in that is a responsibility now for learning, to ensure that learning has taken place. Now, this may just seem like a subtle rhetorical twist on what teaching is. But the irony, and maybe a second important contradiction, is that the students, or learners, obviously become less responsible for learning, for for their own learning, and less responsible for an active role in education. So this is the paradox of active and student-centered learning. It is not active at all, with the absence of an active learning role, as that's also now the teacher's job. So it's not active, it's just busy. And SC is not student-centered at all. Actually, the teacher is even more decisive than ever, not just responsible for teaching, but also for learning, to ensure learning not just simply to ensure good teaching. Because ensuring everyone learns everything as much and the same serves equity in particular and DEI in general. So those are two interesting tensions internal to SC and a few more pertains to this very well established now distinction between learning how to think or learning what to think. And increasingly, we're seeing these politically activistic change agent type teachers and students. And I think we would have to characterize this much more in terms of what to think rather than how to think. That the solutions to the world almost seem obvious 
It's just a matter of doing it, a matter of just doing something about it. But that this obviously runs counter to what we would call critical thinking, right? That here are the answers to, you know, uh, a young generation of people and that all they have to do are just implement these solutions, these answers through direct action. So it's predicated not on thinking at all, but upon action and largely upon an uncritical acceptance and adherence to these political solutions, we could probably say ultimately deriving from Marx, right? And, and this is sort of uh, the fruits of the long march through the institutions. So it's really not at all about an entire generation of young people who are critical thinkers. It's much more in terms of having the correct politics, the right attitudes and the right behaviors as designed by, um, by their teachers and by their professors and by education in general, if we can speak of such a thing. Fourth is perhaps the most sensitive of all of these because it pertains to this epidemic or pandemic of mental ill health in in young people and as it intersects with education. And the irony here is the way that education has become increasingly more and more therapeutic, right? And this is something that Haidt and Lukianoff touch upon in safetyism, from self-esteem to social-emotional learning. Don't we recognize a positive correlation between an increase in how therapeutic education becomes and an intensification of more and more uh, severe diagnoses and treatments of mental illness, thinking mainly of anxiety and depression. So it's more therapeutic, but it's it seems not... The more therapeutic it becomes, it does not seem to have better mental health outcomes. And the fifth is a very similar in structure, is that the more and more we emphasize or arguably even obsess over things like equality and equity, uh, again, equal outcomes for all, the less public education or K-12 education seems to fulfill this role of being an equalizing or a leveling force as something that can have this capacity to give everyone more of a fair chance at success. So, so much of this has to do with the underlying political assumptions about the world that differentiate SC and TC. And I'm reminded of a Nietzsche quote, and I'll probably maybe come back to this again, that the wise men of every age have looked at the world and come to the same conclusion, that it is no good. Simply put into three words, 
an, a political assumption that all is bad. Three words, all is bad. And the other three words that correlate to this in terms of a message from education to students, from the one to the next generation, is the other three words, go fix it. As if the best gift, the best gift that we can give is to give nothing, is a kind of an intentional disinheritance. Because everything that we could give in terms of whatever knowledge or tradition, that it is, it's all bad. Of course, opposite to this would be a, a more of a TC disposition that the world is full of beauty and that one ought to preserve or to conserve it, certainly including the West. And how does this relate to a possible epidemic of mental illness amongst young people? Well, it may not, but this is sort of um, a hypothetical and really a delicate framing. All is bad. Go fix it. And what if a student or students or, you know, young people, what if they're not up to this godly task of creation? Without the benefit of any foreknowledge, this kind of pure creation just to create a totally new world. Genesis. Well, we could interpret these two main manifestations of mental illness, thinking of anxiety and depression, that anxiety in terms of this burden to fix the world. And certainly, you know, a young person with the, you know, shouldering the burden to fix or to otherwise save the world. I think we can understand how anxiety provoking this could be. And corollary to that is a sense that there's no way that it can be done. And, and thus the settling in of a kind of depression. Now the depression could also just be predicated on the fact that you're being told that the world is all bad. So it could be a move, again, between these, these two different things. The world is all bad, depressing. Um, you have to go fix it. Um, and we can't tell you how, because all we know how to do is to make a bad world. Maybe we have some theoretical insights, but that's about it. So certainly this can easily be attacked as a very reductive way of thinking about mental illness. But it's also reasonable to suggest kind of collective reactions to a pessimistic ideology. That typically this is not the kind of idea, the kind of interpretation about the world, or the role of the individual, the young person's role that they're going to have when they enter the world, leaving the family to join school and leaving school ultimately to join, you know, the, the general public or the, the body politic. Typically, we try to present the world as this beautiful, exciting place full of, you know, amazing things. And that the individual has a, a fairly modest role to play. 
and it can be quite quite simple really um you know to uh, certainly it'll sound very kind of bourgeois middle class but you know um get a good education get a job um fall in love get married have a family these kinds of things that i think contrary to that is that well no the world is not a good place and when you join the world you should be turning it from what it is into what it should be or what it might be and i think that we can see these two opposing narratives within this tvsc structure but again this 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 notion that a young person should change the oppressive present without the benefit of any past again because the past is oppressive too and so they don't inherit the past in the present and this message to student sc2 students you'll inherit nothing and you will save the planet you'll fix the world And again, this delicate hypothesis about a seething mass collective unconscious psychology, that they're not invited to take over our world or to continue it or to renew it. They're being denied their rightful inheritance in terms of uh, intellectual culture. And they're being given something cheaper, but even the absence, like even the a void or a vacuum of a lack of inheritance, still some other inheritance will take up this place. And the inheritance increasingly looks like it's this brand of angry politics or a politics of resentment, that that becomes their de facto inheritance. And so it's based on the way that we're conditioning them through culture and through education that we're almost deliberately inculcating a, a more hateful and a more destructive personality. And so this is another one of these tropes of teacher-centeredness, that the teacher operates in this role as a very specific kind of role model or as a almost as a kind of surrogate parental figure, but not in terms of parental authority, but rather inform, informed by intellectual authority as being an expert in something, as being a knower, or as possessing a knowledge that is valued by the general culture that the students are apprenticing. But also, in terms of character, that this teacher, as a strong expert, is also one who demands respect from the students, from the classes. So TC would certainly emphasize gratitude. While I think we can say that SC is clearly not predicated on something like gratitude again because it's a, it's almost the opposite way of relating to the past so to change the present world to realize a utopian future and thus not to study the past 
not even to realize how we got to now. Because there is almost... We can certainly think of studying the past in a purely critical way, but I think it's hard to deny there's a, a tendency to want to interpret the, st the past as a march of progress, which some would probably see, it, or many might interpret it, this, this idea of a march of progress, of continual human progress, advancement, achievement, as a kind of a myth or as an illusion. But I think it's also just used because of its convenience, especially in you know earlier years, younger years of, of learning about the world and history. That this kind of study almost, let's just say usually, leads to a kind of gratitude. Learning about the way people lived 100 years ago will very often, even implicitly, instill a kind of a, a gratitude or an appreciativeness for what is and for what we have. Instead, what we're seeing is not, well, it's the opposite. It's ingratitude and an unappreciation. And this relates also to this distinction, well, the, this opposition between something like objective knowledge and subjective knowing. That teachers need to direct students to a study of what is and what was, and again, these, these historical stories that belong to every subject and discipline of how we got to now, in terms of the, mainly in terms of the achievements that were made, the great contributors. And that I've discussed the regime of attention, and that this kind of regime of attention is required in order to study and understand the world and to gain objective knowledge. Whereas Essie is much less focused on an attention to that which is outside and beyond oneself, that it's much more inward-looking rather than looking at um, the world or history or, or again, these, these domains of these disciplines, these subjects. Sometimes it's critiqued as being, you know, navel-gazing. That there is an increased attention upon the self, upon one's own identity, for example. And that it's not objective about, you know, facts in the world. That it's subjective about the feelings of oneself. And instead of something like knowledge, which is stable and secure and has a ring of permanence, it's knowing in terms of inactivity, right? In the way that this phrase of ways of knowing has replaced epistemology, I think quite intentionally, because something like knowledge or thought or even epistemology, they all suggest their own past. Whereas knowing can be dehistoricized. It's in the present tense, ing, just like thinking skills, right? Critical thinking, problem solving, that they can all exist in a non-historical way. They all have this contemporary flavor to them. And which 
thread we emphasize through pedagogy and education has meaningful differences in the outcomes in education. So increasingly in the first mainstream mass culture, the present is seen as bad and thus words like change and innovate are no longer seen as equivocal or neutral, but as good as if any possible disturbance is good. Even the word disrupt is seen in an almost entirely positive light, especially in the technological world. And the destruction of any old identity is seen unquestionably as good. And again, this harkens back to this, this utopian pessimism that seems to underline this SC politics. That the world is bad and you have to fix it. All is bad. Go fix it. These dangerous six words. So the total change, encompassing all of the unforeseen and unintended changes alongside the desired change, are, without a second thought, accepted as costs a la carte blanche. But if we do not tend or attend to the cost of whatever is destroyed or of destruction. This could only be because we've decided that what is is so bad that it doesn't matter. So here we're getting into some Oakshot um, quotations. And we're going to see uh, as, as a motif here this notion of how can we think about productive change. And when we change something, we want to make sure that we're only changing that. And we want to limit all the unintended changes. We don't want to create a ripple or a domino um, whereby we, if we change one thing that we're trying to improve or innovate, we don't want it to have this chain reaction of changing everything else in all these unforeseen ways or unintended ways. To accept the unforeseen on faith is reckless, but even this suggestion of recklessness will itself be seen as conservative, and indeed it is. As much as equivocating conservationism with common sense could make us uneasy, so should we be concerned that pointing out reckless and destructive tendencies are bad. It's bad to be reckless. It's bad to be destructive except in these very, what should be these very niche boutique kinds of interpretations that, well, the world is so deeply flawed that reckless destructiveness or destructive recklessness is a complete good, that there's no possible downside. It's almost as if the world is being interpreted as if, you know, in theological terms, hell. Hell is that which cannot be made any worse as a place. And so if you imagine yourself living in hell, or if you've been conditioned into believing such a thing, then any, any possible change, any way that you could change the conditions of hell would necessarily, i.e. categorically, be an improvement upon your your situation. 
But again, um, we should be concerned that pointing out reckless and potentially destructive tendencies, um, that this is seen as politically right-wing, and pointing out these reckless, destructive tendencies again, can itself be censored. It's, it's really an incredible moment when interpreted this way. So I'm thinking again of Nietzsche, another Nietzsche quote about perverse wizards. Perverse wizards who, instead of creating the world out of nothing, create nothing out of the world. I think that this is, this can be deployed as an implicit condemnation of SC and the underlying politics and just the underlying assumption about the whole world and about world history. And the, when we're thinking of perverse wizards, we might almost naturally think about alchemy or the alchemists of old. But instead of turning, you know, what is base into what is gold, the, you know, the perverse alchemist would be the one turning that which is gold into that which is base base here i'm kind of cashing in a, a double meaning of base metal and also base as in lowly or undesirable and thinking of this this kind of um alchemical transformation and a perverse transformation would turn um what is what is gold into what is not gold Oakshot makes it very clear, and this is repeated a few times as well, there is a positive prejudice towards change today. And to see is to imagine what might be in the place of what is. To touch is to transform. But again, it's a perverse transformation. It's not turning this base world into some golden world. It may only very superficially seem to have that kind of glimmer. But I think if we really look closely, we see that it is a, it's perverse wizardry. It's this inverted alchemical transformation. That we already have a world full of gold. And that it's being transformed into that which is base. And education is, instead of being a force that is turning the tide against this, this dissent, um, education is strangely allied to it. And that this desire to disrupt that has always existed is never something that education was explicitly allied with or in favor of. It has become almost impossible as people, and perhaps especially young people, become utopian idealists that any what might be or any transformation could make matters worse. This idea barely registers in the popular consciousness 
perhaps because it cannot root itself in education itself. The people who are well-educated and know a lot about the past in terms of history and about the world would not be inclined to think that the world is so bad that any change would have to be an improvement. That this, this perverse idea can only resonate with people who are uneducated or ill-educated. The pace of change warns us against deep attachments or presiding presences or any presiding presence. Technological disruption, science in progress, speed. But a deep attachment or a presiding presence um, that it's not a disruption, it's an intentional continuity and it is slow rather than fast. And again, people not being educated into any sense of gratitude or appreciation. Again, no deep attachment, no presiding presence. Are actually being educated into ingratitude. And come to learn that there is no cost of destruction. The, almost literally in some cases. Right? That you can destroy something and there's absolutely no cost to having destroyed it. That it's free. And of course, it might just seem like... Uh, like a just simply like a failure to understand you know reality or how things work but it's just that destruction and disruption these are just preludes to transformation and creation that when you make this kind of uh, idol out of change and you worship change and everyone has to be a change agent um, if you have to destroy something in order to change it, or if you can, you know, if you're facilitating change but through destruction, then it's certainly permissible. I changed it. Look at how I've... Well, it doesn't matter that I've made it worse. There's no such thing as making anything worse once you understand how truly bad the world is. Quote, there are contexts in which a conservative disposition is extremely important. First, the defense of activities engaged in for their own sake is a conservative drive. I think this is extremely important itself because education is done for its own sake. I mean, I'm saying that both in a TC sense, but also in a sense that this is an idea that we have to get back to somehow. That you educate someone in order that they can become better educated still later on. That it's something, it's, it begins as a process and it continues more or less with, without any terminus. 
And education also implies this other track whereby one will change oneself or that the self will change and that there will be many internal revolutions that occur in the process of an education. But in this, education for its own sake, education that leads to education, to becoming, you, know, you, you get an education to become better educated. And then again, changing oneself through a kind of internal revolution. This is more akin to what we would commonly understand to be enlightenment. And that enlightenment in this in this sense, is the opposite of revolution. That SE is inclined towards revolution and changing the world via an external political movement. And that education should lead to this, to serve this goal. Right? That education should be radicalized and in the service of these political aims or economic aims. So again, TC, enlightenment, is something more internal, and SCS, revolution, is something more obviously explicitly external. Education used to be such an activity. Changing education into a useful, practical, skills-based endeavor sapped its vitality, we're thinking of the dampening of the ardor, as in entering into a great conversation, an intellectual adventure, a coming into one's cultural heritage, since what one might, or ought, as I see it, inherit is deemed toxic, it loses its position, and so the youth are both disinherited and disillusioned. They are not invited or welcomed into that world, into that big world of ideas. And the mania to change everything, or to make Revolution is endemic, especially this notion of a perpetual revolution uh, from Marcuse to Freire and others. Quote, Reflection may bring to light an appropriate gratefulness for what is available, and consequently the acknowledgement of a gift or an inheritance from the past. And continuing, quote, If there is not much to celebrate in the present, then the inclination will be weak. The inclination to see, the inclination to reflect and to be grateful for what is available and to acknowledge the gift of the past. That the stronger we celebrate the present or the more that we feel we have to celebrate in the present, the stronger that inclination will be. And if we feel, if we believe, or otherwise, if we're conditioned to think that there's nothing to celebrate in the present, that the present is, you know, no good and very bad, then so will be the inclination to celebrate anything that came before it. It's quite intuitive. And so... To celebrate the present is, makes it impossible and therefore um, you're not inclined to have gratitude. Um, and so by condemning the present 
we inculcate ingratitude. So put another way, that, that we see problems everywhere, always. Therefore, the past that got us here was bad, or at least backward. And, you know, the problems, they shift around, but anyway, we can recognize a lot of the same kinds of things. Capitalism, patriarchy, chauvinism, inequality, anti-diversity, colonialism, toxicities, masculine and otherwise. The present appears to them only as a residue of inopportunities. So, if you can't celebrate the present, your inclination to celebrate the past will be weak. In fact, you will only... that the present is only a residue of inopportunities and that it is the legacy of some sort of bad, backward, or corrupt past. But we need to remember, as Oakshot writes, but not all innovations are improvements. They are judged by the disturbances they entail. Innovation is an equivocal enterprise in which gain and loss are so closely connected that it is impossible to predict the outcome. Not only the sought-after improvement appears, but a potential host of other changes to the world. The total change is always more extensive than the change designed, and the whole of what is entailed can neither be foreseen nor circumscribed. And so anyone who is so brazen and so recklessly destructive, they say, I don't care about whatever is lost. I mean, I, I only care about what can be gained through these changes, improvements, innovations. How, like, whatever things that it might happen to destroy or ruin, um, it doesn't interest me. I, I, I just don't care. This kind of, that there's, there's no... There's no way to kind of celebrate this kind of recklessness. That it, it may seem almost strangely bold, I think. But just to say, I don't care about cost-benefit. I don't care about what's going to be gained and what's going to be lost. It's simply a violation of, of just... of an essential way that we just have to look at things. And the, the, the chain reaction domino, the ripple effect of all, what about all the unintended things that the thing you want to change will also affect? Knowing that we do the way that things are connected to other things. Regressive innovation. It may seem a contradiction in terms. So invested are we in our prejudice towards change. So again, this mentality that just change everything and that'll be good, that'll make it better. But then what if you, what if you do attempt to change everything and you don't make anything good or better and you come to discover that actually you've made everything worse? That you wouldn't care. I don't care that I made everything worse because I know that I was trying to change everything for good. 
to not care about making everything worse if it was done in the service of, of a kind of a, a, a correct politics, I suppose. This kind of thinking cannot be tolerated. Anyone should have to care about the results of their attempted innovations or changes. But along with this, there's also a discomfort with deep attachments. Whereas I've also, deep attachments is oakshot, and I'm also drawing an analogy to the phrase presiding presence from Philip Reif. And we can recognize familiar deep attachments or presiding presences, family, God, country, etc. In learning, deep attachment is characterized as a discipline, and our whole learning tradition is based on these disciplines that run deep. The current towards interdisciplinary cross-silo pollination indicates how universities are affected and driving, affected by and driving this anti-conservative turn. So I'm I'm oscillating between Oakshot in my own um, my own commentaries. This obviously is is my own. This isn't Oakshot. I'll try to indicate the quotes um, when I can, as best I can. How to foster a love of the past or a love of inherited wisdom in the present when that very present is anti-past? It cannot manifest that if you teach everyone that the present is is terrible, then they will be very inclined to accept that the past was very bad. So if you can make people anti-present, it's easy to make them anti-past. Now, we haven't gotten to Postman yet, but very briefly, put it another way, how can the second curriculum possibly counter the first curriculum in this climate? So the first curriculum is popular prejudice, media, etc. The second curriculum is school, which has a thermostatic obligation to be a counterweight, not to echo the popular prejudices of the now, which increasingly is what schools have become. It's one of the absolute regressive calling signs um, of, of SC that schools just start to parrot and repeat all that is said and thought and done outside of schools, that it ceases to be a place apart, a world apart. Not to train the student in what is, but to invite the pupil into all that was in the wisdom that shall again be. So the school as a second curriculum, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it basically exists as its own kind of world that is about renewing all of the best of the past and about maintaining uh, the good of what is. First, for example, first to become as wise as the wisest who were. And when one embarks upon that kind of quest, I'm going to become as wise as the wisest who ever were, one will probably find that they cannot do this in their own lifetime. That even, even that is too ambitious, that, that even that cannot be done.
But, and again, we're thinking of TC here, but the fruits of an education with that kind of character are going to be reliably good. Much more so than simply rejecting everything for some sort of radical wholesale change that is based on eros, that's based on, you know, libido or instinctual energy. Just let your your passion and your desire just dictate and just go and start changing anything and everything based on how you feel. The deeply felt and presiding presences of the feeling intellect are to be preferred far and above against over and above the charismatics and the charlatans. Okay, a few conclusions about conservatives. Get back to Oakshot. First, innovation involves possible loss and certain gain. So, the burden of proof for the value of an innovation is on the part of the innovator. So here he's just talking about cost-benefit. And, okay, continuing. If and when there is a sense that there is nothing of value that can be lost, then no such burden is required. So in a sense, this is the most advantageous position for the innovator. You're going to say, okay, well, there's certain gain here and there's possible loss, so um, there's benefit and um, that is certain certain benefit and possible cost say so, well actually um, there's no possibility of loss therefore all that exists is certain gain and there's no need to do a, an analysis at all so to be blind to the cost which can occur if you're obsessed with the benefit that this is this will lead downward second conclusions about conservatives the more organic or natural an innovation is the smaller the losses will be third innovations which respond to specific problems rather than the general state of man are better. So what's an example of a very general, non-specific problem about the general state of man? Well, certainly something like to end hate. This is what I think of. We're, we're going to end hate. No more hate anymore. Um, this is a, a fairly clear example of, you know, a very non-specific kind of problem the existence of hatred almost you could also say the existence of evil perhaps and then fourth innovations should move slowly so rather than you know to change and to transform and to revolutionize everything now and then fifth the effects of innovations should be limited as much as possible to the context of their original problem. Again, with the change, transform, revolutionize everything now, we see the exact opposite of this idea, that we should limit innovations to their 
original context or to their original problem. Instead, we see the exact opposite, but it can be phrased something like this. If we change X, then we can change the whole world. Finding the one thing that you can change that will cause the most change outside of that, outside of its context, outside of the original context or outside of the specific problem. What's the one change that we can make that can not just change that thing, but can also change everything else? This is the totally unspecific, untargeted kind of thing. This is just, let's create as much of a ripple, domino, chain reaction as we can, and that that will be good. Again, only if you think that everything is bad, that any change at all will make it better. That even any kind of unforeseen, unanticipated change to any kind of system will be an improvement. It's an assumption about the world as being so bad that also allows the innovator to be completely reckless. That, oh, I, I don't have to worry about the, any possible downside of anything that I'm doing. I'm completely absolved of any kind of normal, traditional responsibility for how I act. Not because I'm irresponsible, just because the world is so bad that there's no way that I can act upon it in, an, in a recognized, irresponsible way. The conservative disposition is not very strong these days. The last few centuries seem to indicate a mania for change and innovation with little regard for established identities. There is a positive prejudice towards change today. Anytime stability is more profitable than change, the conservative disposition is found. So anytime we're dealing with as stated earlier, that you have certain gain and possible loss, then ultimately um, that probably makes sense to innovate. But the opposite condition, where you have uncertain gain and probable loss, then stability is much more preferable or more profitable. Profitable in this sense just refers to better. It doesn't actually refer to, to money. So if you're probable to lose something, especially to lose something established or otherwise good, and the gain is uncertain, then, you know, from, from a conservative disposition, then stability would be, would be preferable. It, this all just refers to how much risk, right, is involved, right? Um, again, the cost and the benefit. But again... If you rule out the possibility of any cost, any downside, then it, it doesn't matter. To ask of education and educationalists and teachers and administrators, when is stability more profitable than change? What should we refuse to change? What will we hear? Again, some kind of anti-stable 
pro-instability institution like education will have the same effect upon the world. That if we, like as teachers with students and schools or just from one generation to the next, well, you know, like we're anti-stability. We're pro-instability. We do not believe in anything like loss. We We don't believe in costs or downsides. We are just going to proceed with our desired changes. Then we're just going to introduce more instability into the world and make the world less stable. In this way, changing the world also makes the world more susceptible to further change. Quote, There are people who consider our current way of doing things to be irrational and wasteful. Our lives are not being led to their fullest. They dream of a world in which the diversities and occasions of conflict have been removed from the world. What's more, they see the government as having a role in this project. To govern is to turn a private dream into a public and compulsory manner of living. So there's a dream that we can remove all conflict. And so what this is is a a private dream about the future that leads to a government-enforced compulsory manner of living in the present. That this is this could be said to be what the hard left wants in the the state or the government that acts as a new kind of god, so to speak, in terms of the god is dead uh, problem to replace this force. So, we are irrational and wasteful and empty and conflict-prone, and we have to remove all of this from what we are. And you can just see the sweeping ambition of this kind of politics. That we can get rid of all of these, all of the undesirable aspects of human nature. This private dream ought never to have become a public and compulsory manner of educating or teaching. That one dreams of a future and then wants to manipulate the present manipulate present reality based on this future dream to make the dream come true. The goal of government is not to improve people, but simply to keep a space, to keep open a space in which people can lead their own lives. It's just an invite. We should not be ruled by the dreams of others. Basically, the job of government is to resolve collisions. It should not hold out hope of a different or better world, but the defense of each person's right to self-government. Its routines are close to ritual, in the enjoyment of orderly and peaceable behavior, not in the search for truth or perfection. 
And government should ultimately maintain a general structure of order and peace and stability in terms of behavior and ultimately have to place take some kind of role in, as he says, to resolve collisions, to resolve conflicts that can't be resolved otherwise. But this idea that it's the government's job to make a better world or to make to make a new man, to create a new kind of human being. These usually turn out to be the worst governments that have ever existed, with history as our guide. And so, so I mean, I'm in dealing with Oakshot, and I should note that I've been re referring to Oakshot, but actually I'm mixing Oakshot with secondary resources. I believe what I'm talking about here is from a secondary source from Franco. Um, anyway, I'll get I'll, I'll get a work cited together eventually here on my uh, Substack. Okay. So in education, again, we do not want to be ruled by other people's dreams of perfection. It's very unlikely that it's going to lead to anything very productive. Education exists primarily to produce smarter, not better, citizens. Again, the goal or the domain should be specific. Like education to make people smarter. Education exists to make people well-educated or better educated. It doesn't have this very general mission to make better people, to make better citizens. It may have that role as well. Okay, Okay. so I'm ready at about one hour. I think I'll do this in two parts. I'll do a second hour on Oakshot, um, and that's probably how I'll, how I'll structure this. Um, okay, so I'll be back with a second hour.